Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. Though she's largely unknown to modern readers, the writer Ursula Parrott was one of the most prolific and successful writers in America for over a decade in the 1930s and early 40s. Drawing on experiences from her headline-grabbing life and her numerous marriages, Ursula Parrott wrote 22 novels and over 50 short stories that powerfully evoke the conflicting impulses that shaped the lives of early 20th century women. Our guest today is Marcia Gordon, Professor of Film Studies at North Carolina State University. This year, as a fellow at the National Humanities Center, Marcia has been working on a book about the unconventional life of Ursula Parrott and the emergence of modern American womanhood in the 1930s and 40s. So welcome, Marcia. Thank you, Robert. I'm very happy to be here. So I want to ask you first to talk to our audience a little bit about some of the films they might have heard of from the 1930s and 1940s with which Ursula Parrott is somehow associated. Well, so let me start with uh, the big one. First off, I would say in general, contemporary uh, viewers have seen relatively few films from this time period in comparison to more contemporary decades. But those who are buffs in particular of things like musicals and uh, gangster films, uh, you know, probably know some of the big ones that are still talked about and seen today, like 42nd Street or Scarface. Ursula Parrott uh, actually did uh, do one gangster film called Gentleman's Fate. Uh, she wrote a novel. Um, this is very atypical for her. This is not a well-known film. But it is a, a film about a, a very affluent man who finds out that he actually comes from an Italian mobster bootlegger family and has to reinvent his life. And again, this is not one of the better known films. I just give it as an example in part because one of the things I'm interested in about Parrot is though I'm writing about her in this particular way where... Um, I'm really focused on her interest in um, women in relationship to men, women in relationship to careers at this really important point in film history. She also wrote about other things. And so I don't want to just pigeonhole her as the woman who wrote about women's issues, because that is not true. But let me then circle back to your question, which is to say the probably best known film that was based on an Ursula Parrott uh, novel was The Divorcee, which starred Norma Shearer and gave her her first and only Academy Award when it came out in 1930. And this was based on Ursula Parrott's first novel called Ex-Wife. Ex-Wife is uh, a very personal story, although Parrott proclaimed over and over again that it was not. But um, it was based on her experiences as a newly divorced woman living in Manhattan in the 1920s. And it became a runaway bestseller, immediately got taken up by Hollywood, got made into this film that uh, really put Norma Shearer on the map. So I would say if anyone's heard of one of the films, it might be that. The other one might be There's Always Tomorrow, uh, which was made twice, once in the 1930s. And then my personal favorite was the later iteration um, made by Douglas Sirk. Uh, with Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray. And this is an interesting story because The Divorcee is all about infidelity and trying to surpass troubles in a relationship that in particular the male partner cannot get past when it comes to his wife's behavior. And There's Always Tomorrow is really different because it's about a, a long married couple. You know, they're at the point where they have all these kids, their lives are 
really mundane and tiresome. And a woman, an old flame, comes back into the life of the male protagonist. And he's drawn to her tremendously, but ultimately decides to stay in his uninteresting somewhat demeaning, uh, demoralizing marriage, because he kind of recognizes over the course of the story, the value of family. And so even these three examples, the gangster film, the kind of wildlife of the Manhattan single woman divorcee, ex-wife, and then this kind of complicated love triangle that gets resolved very conservatively, I think gives you a, a glimpse of a career as a writer and a thinker that was really interesting and really diverse and also kind of shockingly forgotten. And that's the thing that I always kind of start off with. That's gets to the question of why she was forgotten. So she wrote screenplays. Uh, Fitzgerald was working on a screenplay of one of her short stories. And of course, we remember Fitzgerald, not just for his novels, but also for his screenwriting in Hollywood. So why, why have we forgotten about Ursula Parrott and why write a cultural biography of Ursula Parrott? And, and what do you mean by a cultural biography? Ursula Parrott is one of many thousands of women that have been lost to history. And lost is kind of a passive word. <laughs> um, so maybe I will circle back to that now, because in point of fact, women's contributions have historically been marginalized and justifiably marginalized by those who have done the marginalization because, for example, oh, they were just writing for other women. They weren't writing serious literature. They were publishing in you know, places like Red Book and Cosmopolitan. Well, guess what? So was F. Scott Fitzgerald. So were all the writers because they had to make money. So these kinds of things have become a rationalization for uh, not taking seriously really interesting writers and thinkers. So Ursula Parrott is one of many. It just happens to be that I found her and I got completely intrigued by her. And the story of that is pertinent here, Robert, because I was told that there was a collection of unpublished F. Scott Fitzgerald screenplays at the University of South Carolina Special Collections Archives. And so I went down there to give a talk and I, I looked at these screenplays and I thought, God, this is so interesting. I wonder why nothing has really been done with these. And there was one in particular called Infidelity. And I thought, hmm, this is interesting. Let me, let me read through this. Okay, so it's based on a story by a woman named Ursula Parrott. And I remember that moment writing the name Ursula Parrott thinking, amazing name. Why have I never heard of her? She must have been a you know, written a thing or two and completely insignificant. And so I thought, actually, at a moment, I'm going to write a book about these F. Scott Fitzgerald unproduced screenplays. And as I started doing research, I became completely fascinated, not by Fitzgerald, which, you know, about whom so much has been written, but by this woman who had been completely ignored, who F. Scott Fitzgerald was hired by MGM in 1938 to come and adapt her story. And as I did more research, I found in the trade magazines, when they were advertising the work being done on this film, F. Scott Fitzgerald's name, not mentioned. Ursula Parrott's infidelity is what the trades were talking about in 1938. No mention of F. Scott Fitzgerald, who was being paid you know, to do the adaptation. And so it made me realize that Parrott was one of many of these women, or these many women, who have been just kind of erased, flicked off, dismissed, 
and forgotten. And that's why I think she's indicative. I mean, that's one of the reasons she's indicative of this bigger condition of uh, not really giving the, the research time and intellectual energy to women who have made these kinds of contributions, but also because she wrote so much about the particular situation of divorcees, of single mothers. I mean, who was writing about single mothers in the 1920s and 1930s? This is not a very common subject. She was writing about what it was like to be ambitious and want a career and yet still want to have a relationship and how difficult it was for men to accept women who were more successful than them. I mean, these stories repeatedly show that men are intimidated by, emasculated, angry, become alcoholic, cannot deal with the idea of women who have another force in their life that's more important than them. And so the more I read her work, um, I realized that, that she was a treasure that had not been mined in terms of this important moment in American history where women were leaving the home, had ambitions, could get PhDs. You know, all these doors are opening in this 1920s period. And, um, and she's really, a, I think, a benchmark for that. So you've alluded to some of the archival research you've done, and you've done quite a bit of it. Can you talk a little bit about some of the ar other archives that you've perused and, and, and just about the importance of archival research to your biography? Man, it is so important. It's so incredible. For example, the um, Schlesinger um, archives at Harvard University. So Ursula Parrott went to Radcliffe, so I should kind of orient you a little bit. She was Boston-born in the 1890s, went to Radcliffe, went to first the Boston um, Girls Latin School, which was really an important public school that offered young women an opportunity to get a very traditional, rigorous education. It was college prep, so it was, you had to, before you got into the school, uh, say that you were going to send your daughter to college after she graduated. So um, she went to Radcliffe, and so the Radcliffe archives are bundled with the Harvard archives. And there I have found information about her academic record. They kept clippings in her alumni file, as they did for every graduate of the university, that they would clip out of the Boston newspapers and put in every time she had a book or a divorce um, <laughs> and uh, would comment in her file. I have her letter of recommendation from the headmaster, Headmaster Hapgood of the Boston Latin Girls School. I have a letter from um, the head of the university when she was slacking off in her third year to her father saying, you know, she can only get so many Ds before we're going to have to ask her to leave and she won't get her degree. And so things like that are so extraordinary because they reveal the texture of a life, right? And if these forward-thinking archivists and librarians had not, from the jump, been saving these materials I would have absolutely no access to these kinds of contours of Ursula Parrott's life. I mean, I should say she died penniless and obscure in the 1950s, and that's, that's relevant here because that means nobody kept her papers. Uh, I'm assuming they're all gone. I have a fantasy, of course, that somebody you know, grabbed a box out of an apartment and is, you know, one day will donate it to a library, but I don't have 
all of her own collection of mementos and manuscripts. And so I'm really reliant on what other people kept. And um, to that end, the other most extraordinary collection that I've encountered is at Columbia University Archives. Um, her agent, George Bai, who was a major literary agent, um, was Eleanor Roosevelt's agent, Lindbergh's agent, just represented a lot of the cream of the crop of publishing in the 1920s and 1930s. He kept every letter he ever received from Ursula Parrott and every letter um, he ever wrote to her. And we're talking about 500 letters. And so I have her voice. I have his voice. I have her sharing. And he, he was a, her agent, but he was her friend. And she didn't have many close friends. And she confided in him when she was struggling with alcohol, when she was struggling with writing, when she was struggling with bills, when she was humiliated by a column that Walter Winchell wrote, you know, that said something nasty about her in one of her divorces. And so if it were not for these archival resources, this would be so impoverished and dry. And so what archives do is they provide all the things that make a book wonderful to read. That's great. Talk to us a little bit about what feminist as well as anti-feminist contemporary concerns that you see her work anticipating. Well, first off, I have to say one of the most interesting surprises and most intriguing aspects of researching this book has been that I've really had to reorient my understanding of the history of feminism. And let me explain that because, you know, Ursula Parrott was growing up at a time where she witnessed, you know, women getting the vote. She saw the way that educational opportunities were being opened up to women and she partook of them. And yet she was a vehement anti-feminist. And let me explain, when I first read her comments about blaming feminism and blaming feminists for what women now had to deal with, I was, you know, kind of flabbergasted. Like what what on earth is she talking about? But as I read deeper, there was this backlash against the suffragists and against a lot of the push of women to want more than husband and children. And what Ursula Parrott felt as she lived this, I mean, keep in mind, she was witness to, experienced personally, marriage, divorced, having to raise a child, um, albeit with family help. She felt like this push of women into the public sphere and that they needed to work and have careers and have this other life made it possible for men to no longer feel a responsibility towards their wives because they'll be fine. They can just go work. And that it was deteriorating the institution of marriage, which was still in her mind, this ideal. Now she had in mind something that, that didn't exist at the time, which we would casually call partnership now. She really thought in the ideal world, you would have an intellectual equals who had great passion for each other, both had lives that were separate from each other, both could be successful, there was no jealousy or envy, but she repeatedly wrote stories in which that was impossible. And she repeatedly lived those stories. And so I think in terms of contemporary life, we've seen this cycle over and over again. I was just rereading Betty Friedan, The Feminine Mystique, which you know, was basically all about the things that Ursula Parrott was grappling with in the 20s and 30s, although Parrott is so forgotten, but that idea of the way that women were made to, to feel that house and home were the most important thing. For Dan is cycling back to that in the 1950s. Then you have like Helen Gurley Brown talking about, you know, women can have it all. You can have career and the relationship. You know, this is all around us all the time today, right? Work-life balance, work-life balance, 
not a concept that existed in the 1920s or 1930s. And Ursula Parrott, I would say, wrote 30 stories about women and work-life balance. And so she was in very many ways ahead of her time. She's not some perfect figure I'm holding up as this like model of feminist history or this, you know, she's not, she's an unproblematic figure. She was human and complicated and had a lot of personal problems, but she was really onto something that kind of just went into hibernation. Women like her, there are a couple other women writing in this time period who are mining similar territory. They just... I think have kind of uh, been waiting for us to bring them back to light so that we can say like, oh, look, they were talking about this 50, 60, 70 years before it really entered the conversation. And that's one of the things I find interesting about her. So would Ursula Parrott be an advocate for the uh, Me Too movement, for example? Now that's an interesting question. Uh, I would say yes. Um, she was very frank about the way that women, when they were on their own, when they were not attached to a man, were subject to sexual predator behavior. She talked about being kind of mauled in taxi cabs. Um, she talks very frankly in a letter that she wrote about being raped by someone, um, someone she knew and who felt completely justified in doing this and how humiliating it was to her. And she kind of wrote a version of that actually um, in fictional, semi-fictional form in Ex-Wife, her first novel. There's a scene where she, she writes about that. So I think she definitely saw that this was at work, but interesting too, she was also a real advocate for the idea that Women should like having sex and women should be free, as free as men are to explore that aspect of their lives. And so I think in many ways, Ursula Parrott would have been so much happier living in our world than she was in her world. And she actually wrote a line that I found, you know, when I was still physically at the Humanities Center and it was just revelatory in one of her notes, which was something about how there was no chance for her to be happy in the time that she was living, but she hoped that one day women would be able to basically find some equanimity between these aspects of life. And I, I mean, it brought tears to my eyes to see her. I mean, she seemed to know she was just living in the wrong time and place, and she was not in a world that could kind of accept her degree of expectations, and in many ways her liberalism, and in other ways her conservatism, because she was a, a mixture of both. So my final question has to do with the role of public scholarship in your work. In addition to this cultural biography, which is both a scholarly work as well as being public-facing, and the numerous scholarly articles that you've written, you've also done a lot of public engagement. You're involved in a radio talk show about film, et cetera. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of public scholarship, particularly in this time? Well, I, I should be clear. I am writing this book really with the idea of publishing it in a trade context so that it is immensely readable, well-researched, but also, you know, I always say to myself, would my mom still be reading this page? You know, so uh, next year I will have an NEH Public Scholar Award to finish off the work on the book. And, and so, yeah, part of my scholarly commitment is that we have such amazing knowledge. We discover documents, we discover films, all of these things that we, you know, we can convey to our colleagues through our scholarly agenda, um, to our students in the classroom. 
but I'm really committed to figuring out ways this information could kind of go beyond and reach the general public. So in addition to my radio show, I've been trying to write more and more kind of short journalistic pieces where I'm taking slices of research I'm doing and sharing them with the general public. Um, I always try to do as much as I can um, any kind of interviews or public interfaces. I've made two short documentaries now. And so I'm really committed to, in this part of my career, um, the second half of my career, to working more and more on communicating parts of these incredibly important and interesting histories that I have access to, to the general public and to using the humanities to interface with that world. Well, thank you so much, Marsha Gordon. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.